to the To Your Bible, a custom design to your Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah, exec- uh, Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And we are once again recording from afar. And so um, if some of the audio sounds a little different or if uh, even how Sarah and I interact might sound slightly different, it's just kind of the nature of things right now as we are all uh, in lockdown and quarantine. And so, but it's not going to stop us from talking through uh, scripture as you all uh, hopefully are still reading along uh, in the Bible plan. Yeah. And so uh, let's dive right into the Old Testament uh, as we are uh, in the middle of Leviticus, and then we'll start uh, also the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts this this week as well. And so uh, we pick off uh, right at Leviticus 11 when we start talking about clean and unclean animals, something that uh, has become a, a bit of a hallmark as people think of the Jewish people um, around what they can eat and what they can't eat. And so there's all sorts of theories as to why uh, some animals are considered clean and others, though all of them have various holes or issues. But um, one of the things that seems to be the clear purpose behind God saying these things is that they would be distinct. There'd be mm-hmm. something different about them as a people that, that uh, once again, going back to the word holy, this distinctness, this set apartness from all the other nations around them based upon what they eat and what's normative for them. And so... Um, yeah, and, and so that's that I think is a, just a big part of why they're taught about this. Yeah, I mean, God specifically says in verses 44 and 45, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves, be holy for I am holy. So he, again, in order to make a way for him to dwell among his people is teaching them how to be holy and different and set apart. And of course, this is something we are commanded to do as believers as well. We don't do it through what we eat. Uh, but we do it through how we live and who we care for, and we do it through loving God and loving our neighbor. Yep. And then we move into a, a purification after childbirth. Uh, and uh, this will be the first of probably a, a few different sections where uh, it starts um, dealing with uh, particularly fluids and things related to kind of procreation and life. So um, things related to, to semen and blood and um, all that kind of stuff. And so um, there was definitely sort of an ancient idea. Um, and, and I think it's still true, but but this ancient idea that um, all, all those things related to procreation, related to life, um, in, in some ways were, were sacred things. And so, uh, but when you would lose those things, when you would lose blood at childbirth, when uh, anything, nocturnal emission, whatever it is, when you would lose those things, that there would be sort of a, a gap, a little bit of missing of life. And so um, when when something happened, when there would be blood loss, when there would be those things, that there had to be like a, a time or a practice performed uh, to, to sort of restore kind of the wholeness um, in, in terms of the, the initial design of the person, the, the created order of things. And so um, once again, we, we, will, we will see this here and we'll see it again, this sort of practice around childbirth. And, and this is once again, one of those areas where I'm like, it's, it's a purification offering more than I would define it as a sin offering. That, mm-hmm. It's not sinful to birth a child. Um, if anything, it's almost the opposite. It's like what God has designed Adam and Eve to do even before the fall. And so, um, but it, it's this purification practice, this, this set apartness, this holiness, as opposed to the profane or, or the, the, I'm trying to think of another word for it, but um, yeah, holy as opposed to not secular, but yeah, profane. Right. So yeah, I think as we read, we need to continue reminding ourselves that there's a difference between clean and unclean and sinful and sinless. And so, um, 
when we read about these purifications, it's not because of sin. It's just because of a, a purity being set apart. Um, and I think, you know, it talks about, I just want to make a little note that it talks about how the woman needs to spend more time um, kind of like restoring her cleanliness after she has a girl. And nobody's exactly sure why. We think that maybe there's a greater shedding of blood because of the girl being born, but it does not mean that women are inferior to men in any way. It's not how we interpret no. that passage. Yeah. And all the cleanliness stuff, it's not about inferior versus uh, superior. Superior. It's not uh, this picture of, well, you, you're wrong because you're unclean. It is absolutely a sort of picture of God's total wholeness and completeness and purity versus impure and things like that. And and those things are not necessarily morally wrong, uh, but it's sort of a right. set of partners. It's like um, even, even the things used in the temple, there were things that were normal. It's like bread. Bread's amoral, but yet uh, there had to be a certain consecration of the bread to be in God's presence. And so it's the same things with our bodies. Mm. And so uh, we get uh, other laws, laws around leprosy, cleaning of lepers, all this kind of stuff. And uh, it's important to note sort of uh, sometimes when we think of leprosy, we, we think of a very specific form of a skin disease called Hansen's disease. Um, but uh, if, you, if you're reading through there, you're sort of like, this doesn't sound like the decay of flesh kind of pictures of leprosy. It sounds like um, like peeling skin and uh, things like that. And so um, – there's sort of a, a simple prescription that, that these people would go to the priest, they look at their skin and be like, hey, uh, in seven days, I think you'll be ready to go. Um, and, and so uh, when you picture that sort of conversation around leprosy, know that it can mean like eczema and things like that as well. Um, it has a very broad meaning here in Leviticus. Yeah. And I think what stood out to me as I was reading about this part is that they're commanded to tear their clothes and go bareheaded and cover their mouths. Um, those are all signs of mourning. And I think in some way, a person who's responding to leprosy is is kind of giving us a picture of our brokenness in relationship with God uh, and our brokenness through sin, how that affects our relationship with community. So um, it's not that that specific person earns that so much, but aside from the fact that we've all earned it, but I do think it's a metaphor for us to understand um, the idea of cleanness and uncleanness compared to, to God and it's pure. Yeah. There's definitely a very communal sense of <clears throat> how the cleansing of the lepers has to happen. And so, um, yeah, there, there's sort of a, a communal message that's supposed to be had. And then we have some laws around cleaning your house out, which <laughs> seems very particular. Um and but they're they're given certain things around mold and mildew and fungus and those kind of things that that would be in your house that could affect your cleanliness. Now, uh, there's a little bit of the story of Jesus that I think is super possible and interesting. Of like in John's Gospel, Jesus cleanses the temple right at the beginning of the the storyline, uh, right mm -hmm. early on in his ministry. <clears throat> and the other gospel writers certainly tell that he does it at the end of his ministry. And I'm so curious if that's a reflection of the story where Jesus comes to cleanse the temple. And in the story in the law that you, you cleanse the temple once and then you come back later. And if it's still not cleansed, you destroy it. And so, and I, it almost feels that way. It's like he came to cleanse the temple and then he came back again and the temple was still not clean. And ultimately he d destroys the temple and rebuilds it in three days. And so uh, it's super interesting if, if it's really there, yeah. but I'm not or sure. Or even just with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Yeah, yeah.
Um, I think something that's hopeful about this passage is that, you know, these guys are nomads living in tents in the desert. And so even being instructed in how to clean their houses, they're like, oh, we're going to get houses. This is really going to happen. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm sure they're excited about that. And then uh, laws about bodily discharge, which goes back to that whole conversation around sort of these life-giving fluids, these fluids used for the creation of life. And if some of them are lost uh, in some ways, um, that that sort of the power, the potential of life is diminished in that moment. And, and so God sort of wants to, you to wait or to be restored so that uh, you can be in his presence sort of as mm-hmm. the whole purified, holy individual again. Mm-hmm. And then we get the Day of Atonement, the sort of center of this whole book um, that uh, is now the the practice, and it was a practice back then of Yom Kippur, this uh, yearly practice that the Jews still do. And Mm -hmm. um, if there's an area that feels the most like dealing with sin and the sin of the people, it's definitely this part of the story. And um, in some ways, it almost feels like a a giant reset button on the temple or on the tabernacle that once a year they sort of go, okay, we are just going to wash everything possible. We're going to restore everything to its true sanctified unblemished state. It's almost like going back to day one of the tabernacle once a year um, and, and washing clean everything. And, uh, and then you have this, kind of story with this goat and there's two goats and one goat goes to God and gets sacrificed to God. And the other one uh, they pray over and, and the representation there is the actual removal of sin in that one in some ways that um, their, their sins would be uh, almost transferred to this goat who would be taken, not, not to the altar of God, but actually sent away to the wilderness, sent away to this place with sort of thought of, of where God is not. And their sins were removed figuratively through this goat. Yeah. And, and it's in Hebrews where we see so perfectly how Jesus is that final sacrifice, that he was the one whose blood was spilled for us fully atoning for everything we did on purpose and we did not on purpose that separated us from God. And because of this, we can draw near to God with full assurance of faith because our sins have been completely atoned for. So it seems to me that everything in this annual sin atonement points to Jesus Christ. Even like what we talked about last week with the curtain of the temple being torn in two, God has made a way to be with his people permanently and has completely cleansed us from our sin because Jesus took our place. Yeah. And and there's a bit of a weirdness of your reading. You're like, who is Azazel? And um, it, it definitely feels like a proper noun uh, when you read it in Hebrew or in, in particular translations like the ESV. Uh, and so um, it, Azazel became, at least in sort of Jewish Midrash tradition, the sort of writings in addition to scripture, uh, sort of this demon that lived in the desert, some sort of representation in some ways of Satan, which should not be surprising if you're reading the Gospels, you find Jesus go out to the wilderness, and who does he run into in the wilderness but Satan to, to tempt him? And so um, Azazel became sort of this representation as, as if uh, this story, um, and I don't know if Jesus had this in mind, but when he talks about the coin story, which we covered in Luke, he says, render to Caesar what Caesar is, or render to God what's God's. And um, we have two scapegoats, and one scapegoat gets rendered to Satan, and and it's the one with sin and death and all those things on it. Like it is um, their representation of their sinfulness is rendered to Satan and then to God is rendered sacrifice and 
faith and devotion. And so, um, yeah, it's sort of this picture once again of, of both those things happening at the same time, mm-hmm. which is, yeah. I think, really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get chapter 17 uh, kind of start. And, and this almost looks like, to me, like an opposite picture of what just happened in 16. And 16, sort of, it's the the where do we go from the temple and then send something out? And now the conversation is now the opposite of what happens if there's something that dies outside the temple, can we bring it in? And uh, God's certainly saying, Nope, you, you don't get to kill an animal somewhere <laughs> else. And then suddenly use it for, uh, for your own uh, sacrifice. Like that's not how I'm setting this thing up. Like you bring it here, we kill it here and we use it here. And so, um, yeah. And then yeah. there's laws. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. And then there's laws against uh, eating blood. Uh, and this this almost feels like uh, don't don't eat off God's plate. <laughs> the blood is for Him. The same thing with the fat and certain uh, sacrifices and stuff like that. Like it is set apart for Him. So don't be the people who basically eat off of God's plate. And and not only that, but if there's like spilt blood somewhere, kick some dirt on it. Like ruin it. Like blood is God's stuff. It is life. And so, um, it shouldn't be used for any other worship. It should be used for somebody else to even come along and worship. Make sure that it's either blood used for, for the, for devotion and worship and sacrifice to, to Yahweh, or it's in the dirt and ruined. Those are your options. And so, um, yeah, it's just clarification of that life idea that it, life comes from God. Life's a gift from God. Um, the animals that you have are a gift from God um, for sacrifice. Yeah, and I love verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. But God says, did you hear that? He says he is the one who's given it. And so not only do we are we invited to make atonement to be with God, but God even provides for us what we need to make atonement. And it kind of made me go down this funny rabbit trail. Just This is kind of like weird, but um, wondering like, what if God designed us with bodies that have blood just to illustrate this point of how he's given it to us for to cover our sins? Anyway, I know that's kind of like... I didn't say that to you when we were talking through the podcast earlier. <laughs> no, no, no. It's great. Um, no, there's all those little things about the body sometimes. Like I, I know yeah. um, pastor in Atlanta uh, made a big deal about lamelin, which is like this little connective thing that holds cells together that looks like a cross. And so like, do, do we make a big deal out of it? I mean, maybe, maybe it is God's fingerprints even biologically on us to remind us of certain things. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. It's a super fascinating subject to explore, like how the ways that our bodies preach the gospel. We won't yeah. go there now, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> All right. Yeah, really good. Yeah. Well, natural transition to unlawful <laughs> sexual relations. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and God seems to go out of his way to define family uh, in order to define the, the barriers of what incest is, what incest is not, and who who that falls under. And his are uh, more lax than probably our uh, legal laws here in America. But um, uh, your immediate family is still your immediate family. and. Um, no relations should happen uh, between your immediate family. And then it talks about the uncovering the nakedness of the father, which is actually the nakedness of the mother, which uh, I find interesting because the same language is used in uh, the Noah story about Noah's sons. Um, the question is like, all right, did Ham actually uncover the nakedness of his mom then? And maybe that was actually what the problem was since uh, the Noah story is kind of vague, but um, it's just a guess. I'm not mm-hmm. sure, but um and then it moves into sort of this this trio of of different things of like bestiality, of homosexuality, of uh, things polygamy, like also incest, um, polygamy, molek uh, uh, killing of of children, and so um, some of those feel like 
way more uh, generally agreed upon as terrible versus others, but um, I, I think there's a there's a thread that really connects all of them, uh, and it's really this idea, of sort of like um, progeny of of procreation, uh, that uh, our bodies and our body parts and the fluids involved and all that kind of stuff and and and, and sex itself, like. It, it does have a created purpose. Now there's benefits in addition to that, like enjoyment and stuff like that, but it has a created uh, purpose. And, and, and part of that is, is progeny. And, and so um, incest that leads to sort of uh, illicit and, and often can lead to genetically uh, problematic progeny um, or homosexual relationships that don't produce progeny or the destruction of progeny in Molech worship, all, like all these things, like there's a very common thread of, of procreation. And when we distort what those parts have a primary purpose of, particularly related to Genesis one, the very commission of Adam and Eve to go and be fruitful and multiply, like that, that is, that is a primary part of those parts. And, and so when we distort that, when we ruin that, when we involve ourselves in stuff that, that is working directly against that, that that's where God goes, hey, that's not what I designed your bodies to be for and to be like. And so it's contrary to the creation order. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, he's setting out laws going, that's that's not it's not how I want your bodies to be and to live and to do. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, he repeats over and over and over in this chapter, I am the Lord your God. This is a reminder, even just think back to the Exodus, why were they set free? They were set free from being under the rule of Pharaoh so they could come and serve and worship God. They are now God's people. So God is laying out for them, like, here's what it looks like to be my people. Here's how we live. Here's how we interact. Here's how we worship. And part of that has to do with your sexual purity. And it is going to set you apart as being one of God's people. Which he goes directly into in in chapter 19. And he just goes, look, I'm, you're you're called to be holy because I am holy. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and he speaks of uh, a few of the commandments back again of respecting. Uh, and this time he actually puts mother first, I think, to drive home the equality that we respect both our mother and our father uh, to keep Sabbath. Don't make idols. We get all that again. And then this sort of peace offering uh, language uh, established again as well. Yeah. And, and I just want to say through this, like Chris and I are hitting some of these things pretty quickly. And probably if you're reading it, there's deeper questions coming up. Feel free to email either of us or message us or message us on Instagram or whatever. If you want to talk more or know more about it, we want this to be an open conversation. Um, and we know that we're not going to be answering. And sometimes we may be even saying things that are going to cause you to have more questions, but we want you to feel free to explore the Bible and the heart of God, even when you come across things that make you a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. In our current culture that we're certainly hitting on a few uh, pretty controversial pieces. Yeah. And so, yeah. And then, um, and then the next section is to is pieces that people often love, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. The, The teaching of, 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 um, caring for the poor in among us to, to and, and these are all things that um, Jesus picks up on a lot in the Sermon on the Mount too, that we wouldn't yeah. swear oaths falsely or tie God's name into them, that we would pay people what we owe them, that we wouldn't misuse people's handicaps, to take advantage of them, uh, the treatment of the poor and the rich, uh, be fair, to be equitable. Um, and, and so uh, there's, there's so many sections in here that are so good and rich around how the Israelites would relate to each other in ways that, 
once again, are probably not the most reflective of the cultures around them in ways that would make them holy and distinct, um, that there would be this, this equitable community, this equal community that is uh, working for each other's good. Uh, right. So um, that that's, that's how God designs his people to be. Yeah, and, and I think people who do these things who take care of others are people who are confident in their own provision and their own security. And that comes from trusting God to provide. And God pointed out, you know, these people were coming out of slavery, um, from poverty, possibly from hunger. They may have had this kind of scarcity mentality, but God is reminding them even through this, like, listen, I'm going to provide for your every need so you can take care of others and not worry about your next meal because I've got it. Yeah. And then we get keeper statutes and God just goes through sort of a, a larger list here of, of different things that he instructs his people to do. And he talks about like mixing fabrics or mixing animals, which uh, there's various theories on um, the treatment of women uh, and how um, we are uh, to do that in a way that um, is consensual in a way that uh, tries to honor them um, because, uh, and we'll deal with this too in chapter, in chapter 20, but um, a lot of these laws deal with, cultural norms that, that, that could have marginalized women and the laws that God is in implementing are actually ways often to protect. And we may read them sometimes and go, well, that just doesn't sound fair, but, but sometimes it's taking someone that has zero value or um, zero sort of personal rights in every other nation around them to going, okay, like they are, uh, they are a person, they are a part of God's family and uh, there were protections in place to make sure that they didn't end up uh, poor and destitute and homeless or on the streets or resorting to all sorts of different things in order just mm-hmm. to get by. And so um, sometimes there's just a cultural disconnect, but understanding that often, uh, actually I would, I would argue every time there's instructions, particularly around women, um, it is in light of every other culture around them, it is moving towards this protectionism and dignity conversation Mm -hmm. uh, that they wouldn't have had in every other nation around them. Yeah. And equality. Yep. And so, um, and there's deals in this whole section around uh, not different, different things that would stand out from pagan practices and honoring elders, care for the refugees, immigrants, all these sort of things um, that are all sort of laid out in this whole section. Mm -hmm. And then there's punishment for child sacrifice, which, um, like I said, it, the, the the previous section that this would be working against that whole procreation idea that that God has created life and life has a high high value to God. Um, it's very different than every other nation that would have uh, often uh, in in old practices even offered their firstborn as a child sacrifice. And God's like, no, 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 life is highly valuable to me, and and, and works against that. Um, but also speaks about fortune tellers and, and seeking out any sort of divine knowledge from the outside. Yeah. It just made me think of Jesus's statements about how little leaven or the wrong leaven can ruin the whole dough. Um, mm-hmm. And how, when you start to let tiny little things into your life or into your community, they are going to bring around tons of corruption. Uh, and so that's yeah. something to be thoughtful to for Israel and even for us of what tiny little things we entertain because they're not so bad and what that grows into. Yeah, the idea of uh, syncretism, the sort of combining the things that God has instructed are who he is and how we are to worship him mixed with other religious practices. Um, like God constantly works against Israel mm-hmm. uh, doing those those kind of things, trying to combine those things. And uh, I think that the, the teaching here is that of going, hey, like, don't go to somebody else to find 
some sort of supernatural knowledge that divine knowledge, like fortune tellers or something like that. Like I am your source of that knowledge. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the idea that we could go to a fortune teller and worship Yahweh, like those two things that like you you can't hold them in in the same hands. Like it's not possible. Um, and so, uh, yeah, just that, that desire from God to, to go, Hey, like you can't, I mean, I know he's teaching about money, but you can't serve two masters. You can't deal Mm -hmm. with it that way. Um, And then uh, there's punishment once again, uh, or at least the punishment's laid out for some of the sexual immorality. Um, And uh, I think there's a lot made around sort of family here and destruction. And and, um, I I think for a, I mean, in the ancient world, but as much as still to this day, the the family and the familial chains and the and the family unit being cohesive and a nation being up of made up of a bunch of family units like the destruction of those things is is so problematic uh, to tear apart lands to tear apart vocations and careers because that would be a family thing to to break apart subsistence and and, and finances all that kind of stuff um, would would destroy ultimately the nation in the long run mm-hmm. and all these sort of sexual immorality things would, would cause a lot of that destruction it would cause women to to be abused and on uh, left kind of destitute it would cause all these different things and so God puts a really high punishment bar for for some of these things to say like look like because of the ways that this causes so much destruction i want to make sure you know like i have a high value on this and so um yeah yeah and i think you know i just kind of imagine in your mind some of these consequences around sexual immorality what if we had those same consequences in our culture today how would um, our sexual behaviors be different or how would they be the same? Where and who would it be giving value to and what would it be standing against? So sometimes we think so many of these rules and policies or even these convictions are out of date, but then uh, if we consider God's heart behind it and the fruit of following God's ways, then you'll see that they are good. Yeah. Yeah, the very things that it's trying to work against are the very things that have caused sometimes in our culture a lot of destruction. Um, yeah, and here I wanted to say, like, as I'm saying that, there's a much bigger conversation. I'm not like advocating for the death penalty for people who commit adultery. <laughs> no, I, um, I know, <laughs> but, but but just like there's a there's a dignity and a value to image bearers that are given in the way that God writes out some of these laws that sometimes gets lost on our cultural understanding and views. But if we step back and look at it through the lens of ancient Israel or through the lens of God's design for humanity as a whole, we'll be able to see it as good in a way that we wouldn't maybe if we were only seeing it through our own lens and perspective, being Western Christians in 2020. Yep. And then God says once again, be holy, be different. And because I am holy and different, I am distinct. And so don't be like the other nations. Uh, he's reminding them once again, the why, like, yeah, you're doing this because I am like this and I want my priests to look different than Israel. And I want Israel, you as a nation of priests to look different than the nations around you. Um, yeah, it's, it's a constant theme of distinctness of, of holiness of set apartness that is just all over the book of Leviticus. Yeah. And so let's jump into the New Testament reading. Uh, we are post-cross, but not yet done with Luke. Uh, and uh, we're on a road to a town called Emmaus. Uh, and uh, two guys are walking along. And it's a story that uh, at times kind of makes me laugh. But uh, Jesus kind of walks along with them. And 
they're they're trying to fill Jesus in on something that obviously Jesus was the star of, uh, and and he eventually goes, no, 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 like all that was supposed to happen. Like, um, I think they're sort of like a surprise, almost like we are as, as a reader. If we were hearing Luke for the first time, you're sort of like, wait, like the hero of the story died? Was that supposed to happen? And Jesus going, yes, that's what all the prophets and all of Moses, all the law had written towards. Like this was, this was the culmination of all the Old Testament was this story. And, mm-hmm. um, and then they sit down and the, the people, the, these two guys obviously don't recognize Jesus and then he breaks bread with them, which is sort of this, once again, picture of a sacrificial kind of meal that, that he has with them. And they see him and they speak about, oh, didn't we feel the fire? And fire itself is like this idea of presence. Like God was actually with us. Like this, this is so revolutionary given the fact that like, I mean, as we were reading Leviticus, like God is this such a, there's such a gap between humanity and God that requires so much. And, and, and there's still fear and there's still um, the approachability question. And now like Jesus is just there in front of them in presence, breaking bread with them. And like all those barriers are so torn down uh, now for these people. Yeah. And so in this verse, I mentioned it last week that I want to hit on verse 27 and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This is our argument that the Old Testament and the New Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, everything points to Jesus Christ as our Savior. Uh, And so that's why we always ask, how does this show us about the life, death and resurrection and second coming of Jesus Christ? Because that's what scripture exists to do. And so uh, Jesus appears to some of the other disciples. Uh, and um, I think Luke here, uh, writing to his uh, kind of Gentilish crowd, is very much interested to go, hey, uh, this was the physical body of Jesus. Mm. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't some spirit. It was physical uh tangible body. Uh, he wants to fight against uh, a Greek thought that would have said, no, the, the physical is bad. The spirit's good. And that's it. No, Jesus physical and spiritually is resurrected. And, um, and it reminds him a similar lesson that he just taught on the road to Emmaus, that, that this is what scripture has been pointing to. This is not a surprise. This is expected. Um, and they sort of, in some ways commissions his first witnesses, tells them to wait for the spirit, but that they're going to go uh, and, and, and speak about what they have heard or known. Yeah. And I just want to summarize quickly Jesus's last words to the disciples. These are important for us to remember because it's what he said to them before he ascended. So he revealed to them the scriptures that was all about him. We are to seek to understand him through his word. He revealed that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. This is the plan and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to all nations. And then he told him to wait because he was sending the promise of the father. So those are the four kind of instructions, main points Jesus hit on with the disciples right before he ascended. Yep. And then he ascends and we get sort of a very short version of that in Luke, but um, we're going to get a little bit more of that in Acts, which is sort of Luke's part two. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, we'll transition into into Acts, which yeah. uh, I would argue Luke and Acts are meant to be read together. They're meant to, mm-hmm. They were composed together. They have the same author um, and they're meant to sort of be read as two different parts, not just necessarily right straight through. Um, but it's as if Luke is writing to Theophilus, whoever Theophilus is, and, and saying, here's the story of the Galilean carpenter who was God and man and, and started changing the world. And now, Theophilus, here's, here's the story of how his followers have now 
planted churches and started turning this world upside down and uh, as a sort of continuation of all that Jesus did. And so um, it's, yeah. it's meant to be in two parts, but it's still meant to be read together. Yeah. Yeah. And guys, as you read Acts, I'm just excited that we're reading Acts. I'm, I'm excited that we made it through a gospel and we're into our second book in the New Testament. Y'all, there are some crazy stories in this book. So don't be like, don't get so serious or formal over your reading that you forget to like have your jaw drop in awe when this guy falls out of a window and gets raised from the dead. Like there are cool and crazy stories that happen in here. And part of enjoying and delighting in the work that God does is just stepping back and being amazed at the crazy stories that happen. And when we uh, laid out this reading plan, just know we're going to take some breaks while we're walking through Acts. Uh, we're going to take some breaks to, to deal with letters as they are written kind of in the storyline. Uh, we're also probably going to take a break uh, for Mark and Matthew somewhere in there as well. Uh, and so uh, it's just kind of how this end up being constructed. Uh, but uh, so we'll, we'll take a, a pause every now and then uh, as we walk through this book. But uh, let's, let's get going right from uh, chapter one. Uh, yeah. We once again get this promise of the Holy Spirit, uh, but I want I want to combine the, these first two stories because uh, I think uh, once again I, I cover this a little bit in the crucifixion, the sort of Roman good news gospel themes that uh, are being picked up, and I, I think Luke's picking those up again right from the get go. Uh, there was a, a fairly uh, popular story that that definitely would have existed by Jesus's time of of. Um, how uh, Caesar Augustus, which, which, I mean, we got a whole month named after him, how Caesar Augustus took the throne. Uh, and his dad, Julius Caesar, was murdered, as most of us know from Shakespeare. Uh, Julius Caesar was murdered. And then sort of there was this option of, of two different um, people taking the throne. It was Mark Anthony, who was more expected. He was the military power. And then Octavian, who was less seasoned, but a good politician uh, taking over the throne. Uh, Octavian also become named Caesar Augustus. And so at the time, there was this comet that existed in the sky. And, and it's well known all over, even outside of Rome, that this comet was in the sky that you could even see it during the daytime. And Octavian seized on this and said, oh, that was my father, Julius Caesar, ascending to his throne as God. And uh, Octavian started declaring himself the son of God of the Most High. And um, this language that the New Testament writers picked up on plenty. And and so Octavian was trying to use that to say, my son or my father is, is God and I'm his son and I should be the ruler here in the Senate liking Octavian, totally backed him up and said, yes, 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 that, that is what happened. Uh, the Caesar certainly is that. We want Octavian uh, on the throne. Um, but they, uh, they were smart, too, to go, but, but, but we want a position, too. And so the Senate goes, but we were there as well. We were there. We were all on this mountain together when, uh, when, Caesar, when Julius Caesar, before he ascended um, to sit on his throne, and Julius Caesar said that we would be his witnesses, that we would be um, those that would tell this and spread the, the 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 good news, this gospel of Rome to the edges of the earth. And then Julius Caesar ascended. And guess how many people were sitting there amongst the senators? It just happened to be 12 of them. And, and so this, this story, and it's a question of like, once again, did Jesus totally use that story in order to convey to his disciples, like, I want you to know, like, uh, this is me going to sit on the throne. Like this is the kingdom thing. You know this story. This is me totally enacting this in a way more cosmic way. Um, or, or is Luke using some of the deliberate play and language here? I, I'm not totally sure, but it is very clear 
that this is absolutely Jesus ascending to take the throne, that he is truly commissioning his people to go expand this kingdom truly to the ends of the earth of, mm. of, of this kingdom of God. And, and so um, it's not lost on his disciples to, to um, what is happening in this moment. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Super fascinating. Yeah, and uh, which I think is why even like the first thing they do is go, well, there's only 11 of us and there were 12 senators. And so like, we need to replace uh, Judas. Like we, we need to go do something about this. And so, um, and I think that's why they eventually go off and try to go do that. Um, yeah, and yeah. I, I mean, I do think, so we hear about them or we read about them returning to Jerusalem and just remember that what had just happened in Jerusalem for them, you know, like a month and a half before is that right. their best friend and their rabbi was crucified. So going to Jerusalem was a risky move for them. Um, right. And their response was prayer. They got together with the disciples, with some other women, with Jesus' mother and his half siblings. Um, and they began to pray and seek God and what to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're I think it's they're, cool they're, too. They're, they're- Sorry. I think it's cool, too, that Peter kind of stands up and takes the lead. We don't, from what we've read this time, we don't necessarily see that transition. But, like, Peter's willing to step back into who he is, knowing that he's been forgiven and that he can still lead, even though he very, very recently had made, like, the biggest mistake of his life. Yeah. It's the restoration of Peter is such a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. Um and then we get the beginning of the Pentecost story, though we kind of cut off our Pentecost story <laughs> right in the middle uh, this week. But um, yeah, this is happening uh, during this festival of weeks, which kind of has a front end and a tail end. The first part of it is actually the Sunday, uh, or what we would call Easter Sunday, the Sunday uh, after uh, um uh, the Passover, uh, and then uh, fifty days later is this celebration that is the Pentecost celebration that the, that the people in in Jerusalem are gathering for. It's this harvest celebration of Thanksgiving. Uh, they also started connecting it with the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, um, just because of they try to map the dates. And so um, this is sort of that picture. And so if they're having this celebration, they're thinking about Sinai, they're thinking about all this sort of stuff, like. There's so so many interesting parallels between this story, this Pentecost story, and that. Like you people coming from to Sinai to the mountain, and here you're in Jerusalem. You're in the Mount Zion. You're in uh, the Mount of God uh, in in Jerusalem. Uh, the, there was thunder on the mountain in Sinai. Well, interestingly, uh, in Greek, the word for thunder is the same word for tongues. Um, mm. it, it was used the same way. So it would be like the sound of thunder and the sound of tongues all happening at the same time. Um, God establishes his dwelling through Sinai. He instructions on the tabernacle and all this kind of stuff. And then God comes by his spirit to fill his people, this sort of new temple, this new tabernacle uh, on earth. There'll be fire that will consume the sacrifices and there'll be fire that will come down and settle on his people. Um, And so you have all these parallels and eventually you'll get this interesting parallel too, uh, which you'll read this week. But like when Moses comes down to Sinai, what does he find? He finds that whole golden calf scene. Um, and, and he instructs the Levites to kill people. And how many people get killed in the process? It's, it's 3000. And this Pentecost story, yet they come, they preach, they tell the good news. And what happens? 3000 become saved. It's almost like this redemption of the golden calf story in the Pentecost story, uh, amongst other things. I think there's some tie-ins to the tower of Babel and some other things as well. Um, but, yeah, it's such a, this amazing uh, sort of story and this transition of of the Holy Spirit being poured out for um, uh, in a way that is unique in history from this point on, and, and for His people, for the gospel to start uniting humanity back together, where the Tower of Babel spread 
uh, people apart. Um, we, we now have this good news and the spirit uniting uh, a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Right. And it's kind of cool to be reading this at the same time that we're reading Leviticus, which is all about what is required for God to dwell with his people and how to live a life of being set apart. And yet here we have it happening that through Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit can indwell us as his people. And we'll talk about that more as we go. Uh, But one thing that stood out to me this time as I was reading it was just looking at where the emphasis of the passage was. Um, And we put a lot of emphasis, rightly, on the coming of the Holy Spirit and the tongues of fire and the and the speaking of different languages. But when you look at the amount of text and words that are devoted um, to the sharing of the gospel, that seems to be the main emphasis of what happens after the filling of the Spirit. We see that they immediately begin to share the gospel, which is a challenge and a conviction to me. Like, if I want to be consumed by God, then my immediate response should be to tell other people about it and to share the gospel, not keep it to myself. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's just a beautiful picture of, of um, God's people and, and sort of this Pentecost moment. Like when we have Pentecost Sunday at church, it's like the commissioning of the church. It's like uh, being filled with the spirit to, to go now to the nations. And mm. um, what, what a beautiful picture. Psalm 109, uh, or at least part of Psalm 109, uh, which is sort of a, another kind of a, um, imprecatory style of psalm, but it starts with this priest and the order of Melchizedek, like Jesus or God as, as sort of this, this priest type character again uh, in this text. And so um, uh, the, the psalm uh, takes on, uh, or uh, the end of the psalm ends with a little bit of, of um, sitting at the poor, hand of the poor man in Psalm 110, right after, sorry, picks up with the Melchizedek. So there was some parallel that was in my brain there. Um, but the sort of imprecatoriness of the psalm of, of almost like a prayer for deliverance from enemies once again of, of God, where are you? And can you deliver me? Can you help me? Um, these people are, are the worst. And can you deal with that? Uh, once again, David, not taking vengeance into his hand, but trying to trust that God can do it. Yeah. We read over and over again, how, you know, anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God in James or in Romans. It talks about how it, vengeance is God's. Um, and we see David giving this great example of it. He's being cursed. He's being encircled by the wicked, but he, declares in verse four that he's going to give himself to prayer. So that's a good challenge for all of us. If we feel like something is unfair, we are being treated unjustly or something is not right. We need to give ourselves to prayer. And and I also like, as I was reading about it, we learn about these um, people that are encircling David, that they're wicked, they're deceitful, they're liars, they're attacking without cause, and they're full of hate. Um, and you know who I want to be in the story is I want to be David, but I had to step back and see like, am I ever the wicked one in the story? Um, yep. So make sure, I don't know, just think about the role that you play as you read the Psalms and try to put yourself in someone's shoes. Yep, absolutely. So what should we look at? What should we look for next week? Um, so I think pay attention to Peter's sermons that you read about in the book of Acts. Um, he makes specific, he tells specific stories from Genesis or from Exodus. So they're things you've read, but think about who he's talking to and, and try to do some work on why he's referencing those specific Bible stories. Um, and in the old Testament, I don't know that I have anything. Keep, keep (laughs) pressing on through Leviticus. You're going to feel like it's pretty familiar because it kind of is. Yeah, I've got a I've got a similar thing for the Old Testament, but uh, the New Testament. This uh, this Pentecost story uh, is happening on the the second barley harvest, which is um, they would read a, a book like Ruth. They would um, 
remember that the law actually called them to leave uncut corners and stuff like that. Think about how that instruction and those kind of stories, the, the sort of care for the poor and the needy ties into how Luke tells the story, because I think there's such an interesting connection. And then as we keep going in Acts, I think the next few chapters like repeat themselves uh, in some ways. There's some parallels uh, between like how how chapters read, and then it sort of almost starts over and reads again. And so, uh, look for those as you sort of go, just to see how Luke is trying to connect some stories. I think. Uh, but that's all I got. I know it's a little longer this week, but uh, there was a lot of good stuff uh, in there. And so, thanks for joining us, and we look forward to next week. All right, bye everybody. Bye.